Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Movie legend Lana Turner was on a roll. She had finally landed an Oscar nomination after 20 years as an It Girl actress. Now 37 years old, ancient in Hollywood years, she was successfully transitioning from starlet to serious talent thanks to her leading role in the 1957 movie Peyton Place. As we talked about last episode, Peyton Place was a pivotal film for Hollywood, tackling societal issues that had long been forbidden on the silver screen. As it turned out, the movie was just as pivotal for Lana Turner's career. The reviews were unanimous. Read one, quote, Lana's performance in Peyton Place is the stuff that makes Oscars, end quote. On March 26, 1958, hundreds from the film industry filed into the RKO Pantages Theater to witness the 30th Academy Awards ceremony. Turner didn't win. That honor went to Joanne Woodward, star of The Three Faces of Eve, but Lana was beaming nonetheless. Her smile while handing out the Best Supporting Actor statue was just infectious, and her decision to bring her 14-year-old daughter Cheryl Crane as her date, well, that was just adorable. No one could have predicted what would happen not 10 days later. April 4th, 1958. Police respond to a 911 call at 730 North Bedford Drive in Beverly Hills, the home of one of the biggest movie stars in the world, Lana Turner. Inside the glamorous home, police found mobster Johnny Stampanato dead, a kitchen knife having been jabbed into his stomach suddenly casting Lana and her daughter in one of the highest-profile murders of the year. Before Lana Turner was Lana Turner, she was a simple Idaho girl named Julia Jean by her parents and called Judy by her friends. She hadn't had the easiest upbringing. Her father, Virgil Turner, was a minor. Her mother, Mildred, had grown up the daughter of a local mine inspector. The two met in Oklahoma when he was 24 and she was only 14. Not surprisingly, Mildred's parents weren't too keen on the relationship, so the couple eloped and moved to Idaho, where they had their only child, daughter Julia, in 1921. The family had big dreams and soon left Idaho for California. Father Virgil, a war veteran, oversaw workers loading and unloading cargo from ships in San Francisco. He also had a side hustle. Her uh, father was a little bit of a kind of showman and a gambler. This is author John William Law. And so he would tend to make money playing cards and things like that. His dream was to be a singer or an actor. He got on stage a few times, but that career just never took off. Mother Mildred, meanwhile, did get work as a singer in a nightclub. It wasn't a smooth marriage. In 1929, when daughter Julia was about eight, the couple separated. 
On December 5th, 1930, he was at a card game and he'd actually won money in the card game and apparently had told someone that he was going to buy a bike for his daughter with his winnings. Virgil swung by Mildred's nightclub apparently to talk about this plan with his estranged wife. He left the club at about 12.30 a.m., then drove to the hotel room he'd been renting at 4th and Mission Streets. Sometime around 2 a.m., he went out again, though to this day, we don't know why or with whom. The next morning, Virgil's body was discovered propped in a sitting position against a warehouse at Mariposa and Minnesota Streets. He had his one of his shoes and his sock had been removed, and they believed that he had put the money into his sock. Um, and so they took the shoe and the sock off to get to the money, and that was sort of how he's found. The only mark on Virgil's body pointing to foul play was a bruised eye. The autopsy found that he had been punched so hard in the face that it had caused a cerebral hemorrhage. From a wire story, quote, Detectives were working on two theories, that Turner was slain as the culmination of a gambling row and that he was taken for a ride by gangster enemies, end quote. Either way, he was dead. No one was ever arrested. Daughter Julia, at this point, was nine years old. She never got over her father's death. For a while, she enrolled in the presentation convent and decided she would become a nun. According to a 1941 story in the Hartford Current magazine, the deal-breaker on that vocation was that she'd have to cut her hair short. After that, she began eyeing a career in fashion design. Now, there's a Hollywood legend that goes something like this. The story begins with a 15-year-old girl from Wallace, Idaho, who legend says was discovered in a Hollywood drugstore that she made famous. That story isn't true, as she told Bryant Gumbel in this 1994 interview. Say Lana Turner to most people, and they say Schwab's drugstore. Well, they did that and a few other things. You yeah. know, but of course, Schwab's was not true. The truth of the matter is, isn't it, that, that you really were in a soda shop, yes. not Schwab's. Right, and Schwab's has gotten all the credit, and I've had no percentage of it. But you were just a high school girl at a soda shop? And, That's true. And... I'd cut a typing class, because I hated to type, and I still don't know how to type. 15-year-old Julia Judy Turner actually had been in a soda shop called the Top Hat Malt Shop. She ordered a cup of tea and sat watching the clock as she played hooky. She noticed a man was watching her rather intently, and she was understandably weirded out when that man asked the owner of the cafe to introduce him to the young girl. And I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, no, he's legitimate. He uh, owns the Hollywood Reporter. Well, I didn't even know what the Hollywood Reporter was. And he looked right at me and he said, how would you like to be in movies? That sounds like a real line. Well, but no one had ever asked me that before. And I said, I don't know. I'll have to ask my mother. And with that, he kind of smiled, and he said, yes, you do that. The man was Billy Wilkerson, who had founded The Hollywood Reporter in 1930, coincidentally just a few months before Virgil Turner was killed. Through Wilkerson, Julia got an agent who thought her name, both her nickname Judy and her given name, were too common, too working class. They landed on Lana instead. That wasn't all they changed. But he looked at me, and of course, I thought I was done up quite, quite nicely. And he said, how old are you? And I said, 15. And he slammed his desk, and he said, no, you're not. I said, I beg your pardon, I am. And he said, not in this town, you're not. And he said, if you're going to be in this business, you're going to be 18. 
Lana's first movie role was in a flick called They Won't Forget when she was 16. She wasn't in the movie long. Her character was quickly murdered. But people didn't forget her, thanks to the bosom-clinging top she wore in the movie, which earned her the nickname The Sweater Girl. Lana wasn't thrilled with the sexy image being thrust upon her. In fact, she said that when she saw They Won't Forget for the first time, she was embarrassed by how tight her top was and self-conscious of her body for the first time, though it wouldn't be the last. Here she is in an interview with talk show host turned 1980s Growing Pains dad Alan Thicke describing an encounter she had with a casting director early in her career. And he said, uh, what is your name? What do you do? Blah, 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 blah. And what have, what have you done? I've done nothing. And he said, face me, now lift your skirt. And I looked at the agent and he, he didn't go yes or no. He, he was rather surprised. So I lifted to the knee and he said, higher. Well, I brought it just above the knee. And he said, higher. And with that, I dropped it. I said to my agent, let's leave. I share that anecdote not just to remind us that Me Too in Hollywood was a long time coming, but also to illustrate a point. To outsiders, Lana Turner was a glamorous, cultured beauty living a charmed life. But those who saw behind the curtain knew that was nowhere near the truth. It's amazing how little most of us evolved beyond childhood, isn't it? I mean, really, that's when your habits began, when your hang-ups were formed when all the issues you'd have in future relationships were forged. Okay, so maybe that's not true for everyone, but it's true for me, and I dare say it was true for Lana Turner. To say Lana's personal life was tumultuous is being awfully kind. It was more like a shit show. She never talked much about her dad in terms of his personality, but we can make a few assumptions based on the little we do know. We know he was a hustler, for example, as high rollers tend to be, We know he showed affection with gifts, not only is there the bike story from the day he died, but Lana and her mother told reporters that 20 days after his death, on Christmas, Lana opened his final Christmas gift to her, a red leather purse. For the rest of her life, red was an important color to her. Now we'll just tuck those tidbits away to revisit as we walk through Lana's eight marriages to seven different men. Now, after Lana was discovered and featured in that first film, They Won't Forget, she got more and more work, usually in supporting roles, most often as ingenue. The start of her career is kind of interesting because she didn't sign on with a production company, as so many early actors did under the star system of the era. You know, they'd be signed by, say, Paramount and paid a weekly salary to only appear in Paramount films. Lana signed with a person instead of a company. So when that man, a director slash producer named Mervyn Leroy, left Warner Brothers for MGM, Lana went with him. It was with MGM in the late 1930s that the young star became a leading lady in movies like Johnny Eager and Siegfried Girl. Leroy had huge plans for Lana, positioning her to fill the sex kitten void that had been left by the untimely death of Jean Harlow in 1937. Listening to old interviews with Lana, you can tell she had mixed feelings about this. And this was a woman who'd considered being a nun. Sex was never really me. It was the public image. And I admit that uh, I'm sure I've disappointed a few gentlemen in bed because I didn't turn out to be whatever the hell they expected. I wasn't the real hotsy-totsy broad, you know? 
On the other hand, her career blossomed, and she talked often about how lucky she was to have entered Hollywood during its golden era. As her star rose, it's worth noting that Lana didn't quite get the support from her mother that she wanted. That doesn't mean they had a bad relationship. In fact, they seemed really close, having learned to rely on each other after Virgil Turner's death. But Lana once told Phil Donahue, My mother was not a stage mother. I would have to beg and plead with her to, please, Mama, come to the set. It's so beautiful today or whatever. She was very reticent, very, very shy lady. And finally, maybe she came to see three of the films. So maybe it's not surprising that she married young, at age 19, to an older man, one with whom she'd only been on a single date and who was already engaged to actress Betty Grable. Legendary band leader Artie Shaw was 28 years old and had been married twice already. One union was annulled, the other ended in divorce. Much to MGM's displeasure, he and Turner married in February 1940. From YouTube documentary maker Jerry Skinner. It'll be a stormy few months with lots of verbal abuse. She said that her first marriage was her college education. The marriage was over before year's end. I'm not exactly sure how much of an education the whole experience was, though, because Lana would rush into marriage again in 1942. This time, she married Joseph Stevenson Crane a week into dating. As an actor, he went by Stephen Crane. The two met at a dinner party in Los Angeles. Their marriage soon hit a hiccup, though, when Lana learned that her new husband was already married to someone else. He and his first wife, Carol Kurtz, were estranged, but not divorced. After Turner and Crane's marriage was annulled, he legally split from wife number one and, in 1943, married Turner again, this time legally. At this point, Turner was pregnant with Crane's child, which they'd conceived during their dry-run marriage. Turner wanted the child, wanted children, in fact, but she had Rh-negative blood, which meant she was prone to anemia, which in turn made carrying a child to term not only difficult, but potentially dangerous. Turner would later write in an autobiography that her doctors urged her to terminate the pregnancy, But Lana refused and managed to carry the baby to term, though daughter Cheryl Crane was born with a related fetal disease that nearly killed her. Later, Turner would describe her second husband, Stephen, as... Fascinating, charming, warm, sensitive. But the two didn't work out, divorcing a year after their second I do's. Now Lana was a single mother to a precocious daughter, which made her next love affair all the more tumultuous. In the mid-1940s, she fell in love with actor Tyrone Power, best known as the lead from the 1930 film The Mark of Zorro. Power was handsome and talented and, problematically, married. His French actress wife, known mononymously as Annabella, was by no means in the dark about the affair, thanks to the rabid press coverage the couple got. One tidbit news hounds of the time missed was that Lana got pregnant during this affair and Power convinced her to abort. She would later say that when doctors removed that fetus, they took a part of her heart as well. In part because, according to her, Power was the love of her life. It seems Power felt otherwise, though, despite huge headlines in early 1947 predicting he would marry Lana the same weekend he divorced Annabella 
He didn't marry Lana Turner. He married a young starlet named Linda Christian, who the press at the time had even declared Lana's replacement professionally. As in, screw aging Lana Turner, check out this hot new thing. And then that hot new thing married the man Lana loved. So maybe that's why the next time she dated, she wasn't all that interested in love and romance anymore. What she wanted was stability. So when millionaire socialite Henry Bob Topping Jr. plunked a diamond ring into her martini as a garish way of proposing in 1947, she said yes. I didn't love him when I married him, but he knew that. But he offered me security, not so much in money, even though he was a millionaire, but he had family roots. As someone whose parents split, whose father died, who'd already been twice divorced and once annulled, Lana wanted family roots, too. She got pregnant twice with Topping and miscarried both times. I, I felt that there would be a good home life. Quite a daydreamer, I obviously was. But I really, I married him without loving him. But I grew to love him because I wanted a marriage and a solid marriage. But that one fell apart even worse. Later, Turner would say that Topping, like her father, was both a heavy drinker and a gambler. Her next husband, actor Lex Barker, was accused of repeatedly molesting and raping Lana's daughter from ages 10 to 13. Cheryl wrote in her own 1988 autobiography that the morning after Cheryl told her mother about the abuse, Lana considered shooting Lex Barker with her gun, but decided she didn't want to spend the rest of her life in prison. So instead, she ordered him out of the house by gunpoint in 1957. It was after this marriage that Lana would meet a man who would change her and her daughter's lives forever. He said his name was Johnny Steele. But as Lana soon learned, that was a lie. Right after Lana Turner escorted husband Lex Barker out of her home, she met a handsome man who said his name was John Steele. He was a couple of years younger than Lana, which wasn't her typical style. Usually, she went for older men, but he swept her off her feet. She simply couldn't resist. He whined and dined her. This is daughter Cheryl Crane giving an interview in the 1980s. She was single at the time had just come out of a very bad relationship with Lex Barker, and he fell for him. The man Lana knew had been generous and loving. I was fascinated by the man. He, he was generous. He wooed me. He, I was afraid to mention anything that I saw in a window or something that I liked because it would show up the next day. A bit into the relationship, a friend approached Lana with some troubling news. You know that guy you've been dating? Lana said, yeah, John Steele, what about him? The friend said, yeah, that's not John Steele, that's Johnny Stampanato. So I accused my friend of lying, which I should not have done, and he brought me definite proof. This name, Stampanato, was not foreign to her. I had heard the name thrown around in Hollywood, and he was a hood, a mobster. Stampanato was a junior born to an Italian-American family in Illinois. He was the youngest of four children, two girls and two boys, born to a seamstress mother and barbershop-owning father. Johnny never got to know his mother, though. 
Just days after giving birth to him, she died of peritonitis. His home life after that doesn't sound terribly stable. His father shipped him off to military school when he was 15. After he graduated, he joined the Marines, served for three years, then got married to a woman he had met in China and brought home to Illinois. In 1947, he, his wife, and their baby son moved to Hollywood, after which he apparently bailed on them entirely because the wife was granted a divorce on the grounds of desertion in January 1949. His second marriage followed the next month and ended three months after that. Stampinato fancied himself an artist and opened the Myrtlewood gift shop in Westwood, California, where he sold pottery and wood carvings. But that business was basically a front for his side hustle, which was as a bodyguard for notorious gangster Mickey Cohen. That role is the one that earned him the reputation he tried to hide from Lana Turner. If you don't know Mickey Cohen, he's one of those legendary mobsters who got his start making bootleg booze during Prohibition. His lasting legacy was taking over the Los Angeles underworld after predecessor Bugsy Siegel was killed in 1947. Some Cohen backstory from L.A.'s KTTB. He was always in some kind of trouble, but the law couldn't make anything stick. So the government went after his finances, just like they did with Cohen's idol, Al Capone. I am willing to save my country the expense of a trial and plead guilty. We were there when he was convicted twice in 1951 and again in 1961, both for tax evasion. Cohen opened clubs around town and became a celebrity himself, largely because of the company he kept. Frank Sinatra, Robert Mitchum, Marilyn Monroe. Lana Turner, known as a party girl, was a regular at just about every club, Cohen's included. The media created Mickey Cohen. He was a darling of the media. They loved it. They loved it because everything he did was newsworthy. I just spit on a sidewalk and it'll be in the headline. He was a cocky little guy. That cocky little guy needed henchmen. Enter Johnny Stompanato. In the years before their meet-cute, Stompanato was arrested time and again by the LAPD, facing charges like vagrancy and robbery. In 1952, he married actress Helene Stanley, whose biggest roles were actually in cartoons. Disney at the time used live-action films as the basis for animation, as in they would hire actors to do the scenes, film those, and then create animations based off of those films. Stanley would ultimately serve as the model for several Disney classics, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, and Anita Radcliffe from 101 Dalmatians. Stampanato and Stanley divorced in 1954. About this time, the sparkle on Lana's rising star was beginning to dim. It had been four years since newspapers had declared Linda Christian the next Lana Turner, and the OG Lana was getting frustrated with the parts MGM was giving her. Like this one. Spectacular in its lavish background. The Prodigal is a creation of wonders and magnificence brought to the screen with an incomparable cast. Lana Turner is Samara, the high priestess of the love cult of the goddess Astarte, immoral symbol of shameless worship. The movie once again put Lana's beauty front and center, but she was really itching to show she could, you know, act. That opportunity came right around the time she started receiving bouquets of flowers at the studio. The cards attached were signed John Steele. 
He started calling her, too. She eventually took his call one day and to kind of thank him for all the flowers. And he asked her if she would go out to dinner with him. And she initially said no. But John was persistent and handsome, charming and attentive. And he wore Lana down before she realized who he really was. As we talked about last episode, the film Peyton Place was huge for the industry, based on the book by Grace Metallius with a murder plotline ripped straight from the headlines of the time, the movie tackled a number of taboos, teenage sex, abortion, incest, adultery. Lana Turner was approached about playing the seemingly widowed mother of a teenage girl. Producer Jerry Wald wasn't optimistic that such a big star would say yes, but at this point, Lana wanted to reinvent herself, and this role seemed the perfect opportunity. And besides, Lana herself was actually the mother of a teenage girl, so she laughed off Wald's fear that she wouldn't want to age herself by playing one. Here is Constance McKenzie, as played by Lana Turner. The movie was a huge success. Lana's love life, meanwhile, was still a flop. By the time she realized that Steele was stompinato, Lana was spitting. This is where Freud would have had a field day, I imagine, because Stampinato wasn't unlike Lana's own father. He was handsome and sometimes loving, but also volatile and shady. Cheryl Crane. He had a bad reputation, so she kind of kept him under wraps. And I didn't really get to know him until maybe six months after they had been seeing each other. Stampinato wasn't keen being kept on the down low, however. After Lana had filmed Paint in Place, she flew to London to co-star with Sean Connery in a melodrama called Another Time, Another Place. Stampinato suspected the two stars were having an affair, so he flew to Britain after her, stormed onto the set during a scene even, and pointed a gun at Connery. He warned the Scotsman to stay away from his woman. Connery grabbed the gun from Stampinato's hand, twisting his wrist and punching him in the face. After which, the big, tough mobster henchman ran off the set. To this day, this confrontation inspires clickbait headlines like this one from 2020. The time Sean Connery punched a real mobster in the face. After the incident, Stampanato was deported from England for breaking the country's gun laws. Not surprisingly, his mistreatment of Lana escalated. Author John William Law again. She wanted to break away from him, but he was always threatening her, saying that he would hurt her, he would he would cut her, he would right, ruin her right. career, he would hurt her family if she left him. And so she, she supposedly had wanted to get away from him, but at the same time, she was drawn to him. On February 17, 1958, after months of speculative headlines, Lana finally got the professional news she'd been aching for. She learned she was nominated for the Best Actress Oscar for her turn in Peyton Place. The news came as she vacationed in Mexico after wrapping the movie in London. This should have been a time of utter elation for her, but instead, she was getting more and more concerned about the man who claimed he loved her, yet regularly threatened to disfigure her face to ruin her career. It was clear that things with Johnny Stampanato were coming to a head. Lana Turner was no stranger to the Oscars. She'd been attending them for years. I now have great pleasure in introducing Miss Lana Turner. Thank you, Mr. Harrison, ladies and gentlemen. It is my privilege to present the music score and awards. 
The first is for the best scoring of a musical picture. That clip was from 1947, about a decade into her film career. You can imagine her elation when 11 years after that, she finally got nominated. She was being recognized not for her looks, but for her talent. There was no way she was going to spend that night with Johnny Stampinato by her side. According to her daughter, She told him that she wasn't taking him to the Academy Awards. She was taking her mother and her daughter, which she did. Within a, the next week and a half of time, they had huge arguments, and he beat her very badly, and she came to me and told, finally told me the whole story. And I kept saying, call the police, and he said, I can't, the publicity. The award ceremony came in March, and the photos of 14-year-old Crane alongside her beaming mother are beautiful. But the people who saw the images the next day in newspapers worldwide had no idea the drama that night of celebration had caused in Lana's world. Stampinato was furious. His violent reaction to not being invited to the Oscars, coming right after his embarrassing confrontation with Sean Connery, was it for the actress. She was fed up. She decided it was time to end things for good. Before she did, she warned her daughter, I'm ending this. It might get ugly, so be prepared. And I kept saying, please call somebody, have somebody here. And she wouldn't. It wasn't just about the headlines, either. And these days, production companies had morality clauses. The rumors about her dating Stampinato were one thing. Acknowledging publicly that she'd been dating a gangster, well, that was literally grounds to fire her. And right when her star was beginning to rise again. Nine days after the Oscars, on Good Friday of 1958, Lana summoned the strength to tell Stampinato it was over. Cheryl said she listened from behind the closed door to her mother's bedroom. He had been verbally threatening her and me and my grandmother. But now things were going beyond mere threats. She could hear pushing and shoving and her mother pleading with him to leave. It escalated to the point where I was terrified. Cheryl ran downstairs to the kitchen, frantically looking for something she could use for protection. There was a knife on the kitchen counter. I picked it up, ran back up stairs, was outside the door, and all of a sudden his, the door flew open and he was in front of me and he had his arm raised, which looked like he was about to strike her. It, all, it was over in a minute. I, he ran into me, I ran into him, I don't know, he, he was dead. Lana later said she hadn't seen the knife, and this was quite a knife. It was thin, almost like an ice pick, but with more width at the hilt and it was eight inches long. Cheryl had rammed it deep into Stampinato's stomach. Lana heard him moaning and gurgling blood, but couldn't make sense of it. Then she lifted his sweater and saw the gaping hole the knife had left. Photos from the crime scene are eerie in how incongruous they are. Stampinato's lifeless body was supine on the floor of Lana's all-pink bedroom. Police took Cheryl into custody when they arrived on scene. She spent three weeks in a juvenile hall while a media frenzy surrounded the inquest. Stampinato's boss, Mickey Cohen, was called to the morgue to identify the body. After months of trying to avoid any publicity over this relationship, Lana suddenly found it splashed on front pages worldwide. She hired a defense lawyer for her daughter, and that lawyer told reporters he wanted to spare Cheryl the trauma of reliving what had happened 
So instead of Cheryl speaking at the inquest, Lana was the star witness. When he dropped his arm, went out, so that I still did not think that there was blood or a wound. She testified that Stampanato was ready to kill her that night and that Cheryl saved her life. Reporters were rabid over the story, even if not everyone believed it. From a documentary, Skeptics weren't buying Lana's story. Some even reported that Lana was the real killer, and her testimony was just another one of her performances. Cheryl Crane. I mean, there were so many rumors going around, and, and it's the same today. The conspiracy theories, you know, that we hear all the time. Nobody wants to believe the truth. The conspiracy theories were fueled in part by the fact that police couldn't find any fingerprints on the kitchen knife used to kill Stampanato. But that didn't sway the judge in the inquest. The judge ruled Johnny Stampanato's death justifiable homicide, and it never went to trial. The rumors never went away. It's hard to imagine that Lana and Cheryl would have managed to keep up a cover story for more than 60 years, though. So I'm inclined to think their version was true, especially considering how tough things were for the family after the fact. In a move I can't quite fathom, Cheryl was declared a ward of the court. The reason this is so odd is because Cheryl wasn't ultimately charged with a crime, so the notion that authorities took over her guardianship is kind of nuts. None of this would happen today. And in those days, once you became a ward of the court, I mean, they had you under their control. Mm -hmm. And until I turned 18, the court had to decide everything that I could do and not do actually was a very, very difficult thing for them as well as for me and a very unfair situation. But today that, you know, it's, it's a whole new world. A child immediately has a representative that is strictly for them and their benefit. And then they didn't. So, you know, it would be different. Amazingly, the whole dating a mobster who her daughter fatally stabbed business didn't hurt Lana's career. In fact, the year after the whole mess, she landed what's considered one of her best roles as the lead in Imitation of Life, a remake of a 1934 movie based on a 1933 book in which a white single mother befriends a black single mother and her daughter. In the 1980s, Lana also had a recurring role on the hit TV series Falcon Crest. Her final acting role was as a guest star in 1985 on The Love Boat. Lana's personal life pretty much continued as it had been, meaning that her clown car of marriages continued. Of fifth husband Fred May, she said, Now, that was a truly a wonderful man. He's still my dearest friend, and we still have a wonderful, deep love and respect for each other, much more than when, when we were married, it seems. That marriage lasted from 1960 to 1962, but the friendship lasted the rest of Lana's life. In 1965, she married Robert Eaton, a businessman 10 years younger than she was, who would surely later appreciate hearing her say on talk shows that he was the first man to, you know, really satisfy her. He was the man who, for the first time, introduced me to what beautiful sex was and could be. But he liked satisfying other women, too, so that marriage was short-lived. Lana's seventh and final husband was a guy who went by the name Ronald Dante. He was a self-declared hypnotist and court-declared fraud. 
About him, Lana said, I wish I could prove that he hypnotized me, but I have no way of doing that. Well, that would give me a reason for doing such a dumb thing as marrying him, because he was a real thief. In the end, Lana decided she didn't need a man, didn't want one either. What she did want, and eventually got, was a healthy relationship with her daughter. It hadn't been easy, especially because in the years after the stabbing, the family simply never discussed what had happened, never talked about how it affected their lives. It's why Cheryl's autobiography is titled Detour, A Hollywood Story. After that book came out in 1988, Lana finally had a heart-to-heart with her daughter. She said to me, you mean, my God, you mean I never thanked you for that? And that, I mean, that was like, that, that was like the greatest hug in the world. I mean, it, yes, it meant so much to me. I wish it had happened when I was 14, but at least it happened. That reconciliation came seven years before Lana died of throat cancer in 1995. She was 75. She once summed up her life in an interview with journalist Marjorie Rosen in 1983. She said, quote, I haven't had an easy life, but it sure hasn't been a dull one. And I'm pretty proud of the way this gal has held up. End quote. To research this story, I started with Britannica for the first time, read a ton of contemporary news stories, and did some genealogical digging. I also watched some documentaries and a ton of talk show interviews with Lana Turner, each of which was amusingly described as rare, despite there being so many of them. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>